Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. We got a fun one this week. Yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, so we did an interview with uh, Brian Raftery, who is a writer. He's written for Rolling Stone, Wired, The Ringer, Entertainment Weekly. And earlier this year, he released a book called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Uh, basically, uh, he, he looks at the year in film, uh, goes through some of uh, the weirdest movies that uh, a big studio ever put out, uh, all in sort of one concise package. Uh, a lot of it in a you know in a very fascinating and, and sometimes frightening ways. The conversations that we're having now uh, are the conversations that were happening on the big screen 20 years ago. Stuff like like this big franchise cycle we're in, toxic fan bases, um, inclusion, conversations about representation and black filmmakers and women filmmakers, trans characters in film. Yeah, it's all, we've been having these conversations for so long and it's all still relevant and, and to have it all put together in a, in a concise package, it's really, it's kind of mind blowing. I know like for me, and we'll talk about it in the interview, um, I, I, I have a hard time believing almost that that all these movies happened in the same year yeah oh yeah how, how many have you watched a lot of the movies that are listed in the book so uh in in true form to what did we miss i have plenty of blind spots here <laughs> uh so there are 30 movies that he talks about in depth uh throughout the book uh of those there are eight i haven't seen that's a cheat there were 11 <laughs> or so when i got the book and I, i've 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 Caught up on a few of them since, but sure. uh, yeah, making my way through it nice. uh, through the list. I've read the book. Um, yeah, yeah, nice. What'd you think of the book? Yeah, it's. I think it's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's nice to have kind of. Like, I love these kind of making of anecdotal kind of stories, um, which talk about the movie but also relate it to the culture. That's kind of like my favorite kind of film writing, I guess. Uh, and so this is a nice book that's kind of presented to me how important this year was uh, to me as a as a moviegoer and a film lover uh, I didn't realize how 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 impactful a lot of these movies were to my um, you know upbringing uh, uh, at, or my arc as a movie watcher mm-hmm. um, I've seen every movie in the book because I have a sickness <laughs> Are you? But are you down with the sickness? What? Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, no, that doesn't work unless you scream it. Like, yeah, there we go. That is works. That good enough? Yeah, that works. Okay, thanks. Uh, great. Um, yeah, so we're gonna get right to it because we had a really we had an awesome talk with Brian. Yeah. Um, we talk a bit about the book, and then we talk about one of Brian's pop culture blind spots, and that's the X Files. That's right. I skipped that part entirely. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so we we chose four episodes of the X Files. Yeah. Uh, it seems like we we were both at best like kind of casual X Files fans. Yeah. I would say. Well, casual, yes, but I've seen every single episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we picked four episodes that don't deal with the overarching mythology and the conspiracy stuff. So we did uh, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. We did uh, Bad Blood, Home, and Drive, which um, you know, kind of check a lot of the boxes that X-Files is really great at. So an episode that has a lot of heart, an episode that's very funny, an episode that does horror really well. Um, and then Drive is a different kind of conspiracy kind of episode as opposed to the, the alien conspiracy stuff. Um, so yeah, it was a really great talk. And here is that discussion with Brian Raftery. 
We're here with uh, Brian Raftery, who is the author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, you know, first question for you is, you know, I've seen some listicles and sort of shorter articles online looking at 1999 uh, as sort of like a, a real standout year for movies. So I was wondering for you, what was the, 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 the motivation to sit down and dive into it in the depth that you have and, you know, ultimately put out the book? Uh, I think around 2016, I was starting to think about the end of the world. I'm not sure what happened in the fall of 2016 <laughs> that might have. Um, but I started thinking a lot about Y2K and about 1999 and just about how crazy that year was. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there are these big sort of bullet point events of that year, whether it's Columbine or Y2K or, or you know, or Clinton's, um, you know, the, the impeachment stuff coming to a halt. But there were also, when I look at that year, there were all these other really interesting, strange things going on that felt we were still kind of living with. I mean, all joking aside about Trump, you know, he talked about it in 1999. That was the first time he talked about running for president. He really flirted for a couple months with that. You know, the U.S. women's soccer team had this very big, big breakthrough year, obviously. Um, and there was like the, you know, there were these, the riots in Seattle at the World Trade organization meeting so i was thinking about all these weird events and then i was also just thinking about man that was such a good year for culture like it was just i was out of college i had started my first job which was an internship at entertainment weekly in new york so i was really um i'd always been plugged into the pop culture from a distance but now i was you know going to my first screening rooms in new york city and going to you know see concerts at roseland like you know i i felt like i was kind of in the mix of it and i was surrounded by all these incredibly smart um really deeply nerdy movie fans and tv fans and music fans and so I started thinking about writing a book about um, just 1989 in general, just sort of about everything from Combine to Britney Spears. And then um, this editor at Simon & Schuster, Sean Manning, um, he'd seen that I'd written about people like David Fincher and Mike Judge in the past. And he, you know, he said to me, why don't you just write about the movies of 1999 and use those as a sort of lens to look at all these other things you're interested in? Because I was, you know, I was... I was as interested in Fight Club as I was in the fact that Garth Brooks made a record where he pretended to be a goth rock guy. That <laughs> there was just so much weird stuff, and I did. And you know, he was right. The movies were kind of the way in. And you know, Entertainment Weekly that fall did a cover story called "The Year That Changed Movies." I mean, this was not, um, you know, the last twenty years of people looking at that year and talking about it have not been a surprise because even the moment. A lot of people were realizing that, whoa, this is we haven't had a year like this before in a while. So that was that's kind of the long answer as to why. And I really, you know, I I spent a lot of time researching the movies, but for this book and doing all these interviews. But I also I really had a great time. Like I still have like a whole Y2K pile here, which I guess if they were to uh, sort of storm my house for a gov by the government, they'd be like, why do you have this doomsday, this doomsday stash of newspapers? But I, you know, all that stuff is really fascinating to dig into. And I feel especially that a lot of the stuff when you read these articles about 1999 or what was going on in the culture and the politics at the time, a lot of them still feel really relevant today. So it was just kind of a way of drawing a through line through the the, the very small part of history that I've kind of been able to experience and, and talking about it with others. Yeah, I, I think for me, what was most striking were were two things. First, you know, as you've already said, the sort of the through lines and the conversations that we're still having 20 years later that were all happening on the big screen uh, through the movies you're talking about. And for me, seeing all of these movies sort of compiled and put together, I, I had sort of either forgotten or not realized that they all happened in the same year. Given that I was 14 in 1999, uh, it, The Phantom Menace sort of <laughs> eclipsed everything else. And uh, <laughs> I, I sort of came to these movies uh, in, in a more staggered 
uh, mm. way. So it's, it's, it's sort of fascinating. If I had been a little older and a little more aware, yeah, I, I, I imagine I would have had my mind pretty blown in that year. That's pretty interesting because, you know, I'm a, I'm a little older than Tony. And so for me, this was like, especially going through the book and seeing them all compiled together, I was like, oh, this was a big year for me. Uh, for movies mm -hmm. and I have very vivid memories of seeing a lot of these movies in the theater whether it was Blair Witch or Eyes Wide Shut or The Matrix, Sixth Sense and even American Beauty they were all really big experiences for me and even the stuff on um, that wasn't really successful in 1999 were movies that were this is like the first year I was starting to seek out types of movies like being John Malkovich and um, another movie you mentioned in the back half of the book, um, uh, American Movie. Oh, uh, yeah. And then and even like Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, which you don't mention, but it's like that was a really important movie for me. Sure. Um, yeah. So it, it was fascinating to see them all kind of, you know, on the page right here. Oh, oh, wow. Like this is a big year for me. And I didn't really put that into perspective until I saw this all together. Yeah. And I think, you know, even at the time that Entertainment Weekly cover was really interesting, but I remember that A, some people were kind of resistant, like, really, this is a big year. And B, that article and then sort of what we were talking about in 1999 were The Matrix and Fight Club and Magnolia and Blair Witch. But I think what happened over the years that followed is that Office Space became a much more important movie. You know what I mean? I don't think in 1999 people were like, Wow, Mike Judge has just predicted how we're all going to be uh, latched to our cell phones and working for giant, you know, corporations for the next twenty years. I mean, I don't think election people realize that that was going to basically become, you know, a sort of weird kind of, you know, inadvertent avatar for politics. Now, I mean, the thing that's nice about it is that a lot of us in nineteen ninety nine realized, wow, this is a special year, but a lot of us also just didn't realize how special it was. I mean, I think we were taking. You know, you would go see Three Kings. And you'd be like, "Wow, Three Kings is really good." What's next? You know, you weren't, you didn't, you didn't realize that. Oh, the studios are going to stop making these kind of movies, and these movies are going to be all the more special five years from now, ten years from now, and that a lot of these filmmakers are still going to be with us in a very crucial way ten, fifteen years from now. It, it was also interesting to kind of see it all and put together in one place of how there are so many of these movies that have been appropriated by awful people <laughs> for lack oh, of a yeah. better term whether it's you know the red pill conspiracy theorists uh of you know redditors and online trolls uh, taken from the matrix or um fight club obviously which has been you know the whole snowflake thing that you mentioned in the book uh has been used to throw towards you know anyone that <laughs> you disagree with i guess mm. Yep. Yeah, they're all still linked. I mean, the funny thing is, like, the Matrix Red Pill stuff, I was doing all these interviews, and, you know, I didn't talk to Wachowskis, but I talked to a lot of people who were involved in the movie, and every single one of them, I was like, oh, boy, I'm, I'm kind of dreading having this conversation about the Red Pill with them, and then none of them had heard of it. Like, I don't know whether huh. it's a good thing, like, whether we're all just on the internet too much, and we think maybe it really is just, like, 200 guys in their basement who are doing this, and we're convinced it's, like, this huge phenomenon. But, like, even Joe Pantoliano, who I interviewed, who's, like, really very frustrated by politics he's like i'd never heard of these guys and i was like and he was he also had very angry words for them but yeah it's strange i mean you know and it's in, in a way it's a compliment to how powerful these movies were and how the ideas behind them were powerful it's also you know it's also kind of a strange way that the internet can transform and dilute messages because i certainly think you know i've seen some very um I've seen some dudes talk about the matrix online and talk about other things in the culture where i'm like you do realize this was a giant corporate movie written and directed by two trans female <laughs> filmmakers and with a completely diverse racially diverse cast on purpose like i don't know if it's quite the um 
you know, <laughs> that was quite the white supremacy movie you really wanted to be. Like, <laughs> it's so strange. But I also, you know, I think the Wachowskis, you know, there's a reason why they don't like to do interviews. And I think it's because they want their work to sort of have its own meaning to people. But it is it is kind of interesting to me that they they haven't sort of talked about that or no one's really questioned them about that. But yeah, these movies just these movies just become very different things. And you know, being John Malkovich in 1999 was a very funny movie about going about a very specific celebrity and the idea of going in someone's head. But I look at that movie now and I'm like, well, is this about the Internet? Is this about identity theft? Is this about celebrity worship? It just feels that movie to me feels like it could have been made any time in the last 20 years and feel very timely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, watching Malkovich now, it's almost like uh, the premises were all sort of uh instead of transporting ourselves into a famous person's body we're all just living vicariously through their instagram feeds it's so yeah it's so yeah. strange and uh and on the one hand uh, not nearly as interesting <laughs> as the scenario the movie posited um the people you talked to uh did they sort of have a sense of how significant the year was and the the work they were doing at the time was was going to be in the conversations that we're still having now about it or um or you know were they just sort of not really thinking about it. They're they're just doing the work and, and moving on to the next thing. I think they're aware of it. I mean, you know, I got a lot of big people for the book, like David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh and David O. Russell and Sofia Coppola. And I don't say that as to brag because they were not, they weren't talking to me because they really wanted to talk to me. It's like, I think they were talking to me because they realized that this was a very big year. And I think all of those filmmakers are still doing incredible stuff. And you could argue where their career peak is. But I think... So many of these filmmakers and actors, people, you know, people like Kimberly Pierce, who's like just knows the entire history of Hollywood backwards and forward. They now know enough about the industry, having been in it, that they realize that that year is rare and that's going to be a rare year in their careers and their lives. And I think that's why they want to talk about it, because it's it's you know, it's the year where they all got to make these movies they wanted to make on these often um, epic scales. I mean, Fight Club is such an interesting movie, and I, I'm not a big fan of the would this movie get made now sort of thing, which I know is a constant refrain. It's just no, nothing 20 years from now is the same. You know what I mean? Like it feels like a little bit of a of a circular conversation. But, you know, the mechanics to make Fight Club where they're going to take an incredibly violent, um, anarchic book and put the biggest movie star who isn't Tom Cruise in it and give a $60, $70 million budget and blow up buildings at the end, that's, you know, that movie would not get you know, if you brought that book under the Fox lot now, it would just be thrown out by security. You know, it's it's such a crazy it's such a crazy movie to make. It's a crazy endeavor. So I think these filmmakers. Yeah, I think the reason they wanted to talk and I think they they a they realized that it was an important year, but also they were all friends. This was a community of filmmakers, you know, David O. Russell um, and Spike Jones, you know, David O. Russell had Spike Jones and Three Kings, you know, Spike Jones had a David Fincher cameo and being John Malkovich. You know, Sofia Coppola starred in The Phantom Menace and w- filmed The Virgin Suicides and was on the set of Three Kings at times because she was dating Spike Jones. They got married that year. It's like it really was a real community of filmmakers, I think, at least among the ones who were a little bit younger at that point. They're really they really there's a lot of camaraderie and they were kind of in this together, I think. So as far as like your curation with the movies to talk about and also sort of the way you you structured the book and and the titles you put together to explore certain ideas and themes. How did you approach that? Did you, were you thinking of the movies first or were you thinking of these sort of broader cultural conversations you wanted to look at through the lens of the movies that came out 20 years ago? I think it was kind of both. I mean, the movies, what movies to include was tough. I, I mean, I, I joke this week I tweeted about deep blue sea cause it was the 20th anniversary, I think today or in, in late July. 
And, you know, I didn't get that movie in the book, but I, I love that movie. I really do. And it was a kind of a big hit and it was a kind of interesting movie. But the fact is, I, I needed all these movies to have um, some sort of cultural resonance. Uh, you know, it couldn't just be, here's how they made this movie. I wanted it to be, here's how they made this movie and here's where it fit in in that world. And here's why it's still, here's why we're still talking about it. So some of it was a work in progress. I mean, I certainly... I knew that Run Lola Run was going to be in it. I knew that Eyes Wide Shut. I knew Fight Club and The Matrix and Office Space and Election and being John Malkovich would all be, and Blair Witch, would all be very big films. I think as I went along and wrote more and it was reporting more, you know, those movies like The Best Man and The and, and, and the Wood, which were movies that I had on my big list to talk about, but then I eventually wound up making like entire chapters about because I think it was really interesting the more I talked to filmmakers about you know, the fact that there was a really big African-American film movement in the 90s, and this was kind of one of the apexes of it. So stuff like that, I don't think I knew going in that I'd have an entire chapter to those two movies, but they were ultimately more interesting to me than some of the films that I may have had on my initial list. And so it was kind of a, it was kind of like, what can you say about this movie in a, in a myriad of ways? It's, can you talk about how it was made? Can you make a case for its importance and its, and its relevance? And also, frankly, can you get people to talk? There were a lot of, there were a couple of movies that I had to cut um, because I couldn't get the filmmakers. I couldn't get Matt and Trey to talk about the South Park movie, which I wanted to talk about because there was a big, you know, MPAA fight and there was a lot of reactions to Columbine going on at that time. Um, you know, I couldn't get the Wachowskis, but I got a lot of people to talk about the Matrix. I mean, it's it's kind of um you kind of you're kind of making it up as you go along, but you also just sort of have a big plan in mind. And and I frankly I had to cut some movies that I did interview people for. I I did have a whole thing on American movie. I did have a whole thing on the Straight Story. And I love talking to those filmmakers, and it and it's and I hate having to cut people from that. But the fact is, I just couldn't find a way to make them all all fit in a you know a three hundred or so page book. Even though American Movie is on my top ten for that year, so that that was a bit of a heartbreaker for me. That cutting that one. Is there anything in the book that you felt was important to talk about, but you don't particularly care for? It's interesting. I mean, I don't know if uh, I you know I don't know if I love the Phantom Menace. Um, <laughs> I certainly I. I was sort of dreading that, but then, you know, I, I think watching that movie now, and I will not I will not derail this conversation with a 78-minute um, a digression on The Phantom Menace. <laughs> um, so cut me off at the hour mark. But uh, it, it was definitely watching the new Star Wars movies now and seeing kind of how um, relentlessly they voted, devoted they are to recreating the look of the old Star Wars movies, which I loved growing up. I at least I you know I put on Phantom Menace for the first time in probably ten years and I was like okay I'm gonna have an open mind of watching this, and you know I admire I actually kind of admire more than ever what he was what Lucas was trying to do he was trying to create new worlds he was trying to move that whole story forward and it didn't work but it's kind of admirable um, but I also you know there's no way whether or not I like the Phantom Menace it almost didn't matter because the Phantom Menace is you know, you could do a whole book just on that movie. I, I mean, I, you know, the stuff about the way Ahmed Best was treated online, about how Harry Knowles and all the online fans were really taking a lot of power at that point, just about the build up to that movie. It's kind of um, delicious to research that and talk about that. It's, it's a very interesting time to revisit. Um, but I, you know, whether or not I love the movie or not, there, there are definitely movies in the book that I don't love. I've, I've, I don't love American Beauty. I definitely weirdly admire it a lot more and can, can, can frankly relate to it a lot more at 43 than at 23. Um, don't take that in a creepy way. I think I just understand middle-aged life a little bit more. And there's things about that movie that I find really, a lot of the things that people such as myself knocked that movie for 20 years ago, 
I mean, I remember walking out and being like, yeah, right. There's Nazis in the suburbs. Okay. And now it's like, well, there are Nazis in the suburbs. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like probably shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have nixed that idea so dismissively. And also, I don't think I, I, I think I was kind of turned off by the idea that like, oh, all these middle-aged guys are creeps. And now it's like, well, <laughs> that was another thing I got wrong. A lot of them are middle-aged creeps and some of them are Nazis too. So I guess that movie was more spot on than I, than I could have guessed back then. So it wasn't, it, but it wasn't entirely, you know, do I love this movie or not? I have movies in there that I don't love, and I have things that I cut that I deeply love. So it was more about what can you say about that year and the culture and also having fun with the stories of how these movies were made. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, and to use those two examples specifically, you know, going into the Phantom Menace chapter, thinking about the hype and, and sort of the massive franchise cycle we've been in for the last decade, and, you know, you can point to the, the Phantom Menace as, where a lot of that started, but I hadn't even considered the whole Harry Knowles aspect that you worked into it, which, you know, ties directly to the sort of, uh, you know, the, the the sense of entitlement that we're dealing with, with the online fan community now, or even with American Beauty, like the big, the first thing that came to mind was Kevin Spacey, given how he's been in the news. But uh, yeah, I, I, I had been so long since I had seen American Beauty that I forgot about the, the Nazi next door subplot. And yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, uh, fascinating and terrifying, um, the sort of, uh, you know, I guess to borrow from George Lucas, the the, the poetic rhythms of 20 years ago <laughs> to now in terms of what we're talking about. I, I did a piece for Wired a couple of years ago on Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks. And it's weird to me when I see, I understand that, that fan culture now does feel a lot more abrasive and cruel than I think it was 20 years ago. I'm talking about online fan culture, not like the general, not the way most normal people like you and I, the three of us probably deal with things we love, which is to get enthusiastic to argue about it, but not to send death threats over Instagram. Um, but you know, it's, it's when people were shocked about the last Jedi pushback, I thought this is extreme, but also, I mean, look what happened to Ahmed best. It's like, he's a young guy in his first big movie and you know, people are on, people are giving him, are, are sending him death threats in 1999. I think that was a very early warning sign of where things were, were going. And yeah, I mean, I certainly, I was sadly, I was, um, big time on Ain't It Cool News and Dark Horizons and all these sites throughout the mid-90s. I mean, that was, you know, I, I would look at those sites in my college dorm every morning, probably before I looked at CNN.com. Like, it was just, it was very important to me to know what was happening with Roland Emmerich's Godzilla movie. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I did watch, I did, you know, I did sort of unknowingly at that time watch this evolution from enthusiasm to kind of like, self-importance where it was like no you need to listen to us like we are we are the keepers of these properties which which was sort of a mentality that grew online over the years and it's now it's just so it's so full full blown i mean i think the phantom menace is the phantom menace of that year in some ways it's like this is the way we're going to talk about movies for the rest of our lives now on the internet and it's honestly not a lot of fun you know right exactly i mean now you've you've got the backlash being so bad that a studio has decided to put a bunch of effects artists artists back to work and push Sonic the Hedgehog back six months to change the way it looks because <laughs> people were so angry about it. And if we're being it's honest, it's a true tragedy. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that was that's I think the way Sonic the Hedgehog looked was probably the least of that movie's <laughs> problems from the looks of it. Those but. baby teeth were really, really <laughs> startling. And on the flip side, uh, we're yeah. we're all like ironically super excited for cats. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, you know, like I, I, I look at my kids and I think, boy, in twenty years they're gonna they're gonna go, Daddy, you know, during this whole period of political upheaval and and civil rights being threatened, what did you do? And it's like, well, 
I looked at gifs of people making fun of the Cats trailer. It's like, <laughs> it's like this is like, I, I do, you know, it's funny. I have no skin in the game for either one of those things. Though there, there was a point with like the Sonic stuff where I'm like, everyone, like this is the least important. <laughs> like I cannot stress to you, I totally get it. I love things that get screwed up. It's like, but really, this is the least important thing in the world in 2019 to get. To, if you're going to start a change.org petition, maybe do it for someone who's in danger of losing their lives with their jobs, not because you don't like the way a, a pretend cartoon hedgehog is dressed. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that started, that was also in the 90s. But also, I guarantee you, when I was in the 90s, I was commenting on, like, you know, I think the Starship Troopers bugs look fake in the trailer. You know what I mean? I'm sure I, I was doing just the same self-righteous stuff, just... I didn't. I didn't have any expectation that it would actually affect anything. Whereas now, as you point out, uh, it does change things sometimes. I know. Recently, online, Matt Zoller Seitz was talking about uh, the Dark Knight and how he saw that as this big turning point, where they were sending death threats to um, critics because uh, they had their negative reviews had affected the bottom line of Rotten Tomato. Uh, so it was mm. interesting going through the book and be like, oh no, no, this started way before that. There's always like a through line. It's not just like, oh, here's the beginning of this thing, because obviously there's a recency bias where we're like, you know, inundated by new superhero stuff uh, every month and you see the reaction to these things. So it's easy to think like, oh, you know, like this. Oh, I can't believe how how ridiculous these Star Wars or Marvel fans are. But it it really started way before that and even before 1999, because I think there's a lot of pushback to. Michael Keaton being cast as the original as Batman in in the Tim Burton movie. Oh, I I am old enough to remember going to a comic book convention in 1987 uh, or 88, early 88 when they announced that, and it was like a Sunday afternoon. And this, I remember this guy. I was buying a Batman comic. I was probably like 11 years old. And this guy's like, "Did you hear who they cast for that, Michael Keaton?" And I was like, "Whoa! First of all, what a weird way to get this news from like <laughs> like this angry guy who's selling me." <laughs> Uh, a copy of of like detective comics from like two years before but also like he was just like he he said it as if you know someone had just cut off his health insurance he was so angry about it <laughs> yeah but yeah they were yeah they were warner brothers got tons of letters about that and, and but that continues now because robert yeah. pattison just got cast and and the producers had to put out a, a a letter saying like hey just be patient and kind and and i wanted to be like didn't the same thing happen with heath ledger just 10 years ago and people were Think now, say Keith Ledger's performance is the best performance of the Joker. So yeah, it's, it's, also, it's really like, strange. Yeah, and haven't you seen Good Time, which is like one of the best yeah. movies of the last ten years? Like that dude, everything that dude is in, he's so good. Or he highlight up from in, this year. Yeah, or like the Lost City of Z, yeah. where you're like, he's in a totally different. Movie. I mean, he's a great actor. That's the thing. Where like, I, I, there is definitely part of me is like, could you guys? And they are mostly guys. Like, could you guys all see a few more movies? Like, could you like? <laughs> Are you, and also, like, there's a whole... I mean, the whole Twilight hatred is also, I think, a very interesting incubator for a lot of online misogyny. Just sort of... Um, Lindsay Ellis has a really great... Who's a video, you know, uh, SAS, has a really great video essay on the pushback toward that, which I thought was really interesting. But it's definitely, like... Can you... Like, do you guys really just think this is, like... You guys still think this guy's just in Twilight movies? Like, this is, like, probably the best indie actor... Probably the best actor of his age, you know? It's, like, he's up there, like... And also, it's like, can you just find something else to do but complain about movies that aren't coming out for a year and a half? <laughs> um, anyway. So so I, I actually uh, went back and I kind of looked at um, all the decade-ending years and kind of 
quickly looked at movies that were released in those years to see if other, you know, end of the decade uh, years were as significant movie-wise as uh, 1999 was. And there were quite a few years that stand out, like 1939 is, is, is huge. It has oh, insane, uh, yeah. Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, Gone with the Wind, Rules of the Game, Only Angels Have Wings. 59 has North by Northwest, Some Like It Hot, Rio Bravo. Uh, yeah. 79 has Real Life, Alien, Apocalypse Now, all that jazz. So, like, um, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, but I also thought, like, because I was going through years as I was looking at these and seeing, like, well, every year is a pretty good year for movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's interesting I- to kind of, like, um, to just look where things are culturally, though, and, and, and going into the next day, decade and how that informs the movies of those years. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, uh, and, and, and for me personally, it's like, you know, 1969 is like, it's like if it was just Midnight Cowboy that year, it's like one of the best movies ever made. But it's also, you know, The Wild Bunch and a bunch of other films. And and that was sort of what we knew when we, when we decided to call the book best movie year ever. It's, it, you know, it's best period, movie period, year period, ever period. So people argue about it. But Sometimes I get pushback. People are like, what about 1939? I'm like, look, Stagecoach is one of my all-time favorite movies. The whole point, but one of the points of the book is that the reason you have 1999 is because you had 1939. You had 1979. You had all these filmmakers who, you know, the Wachowskis talked about. the wizard. I mean, the, the, the Matrix is a Wizard of Oz movie. You know what I mean? It's like you can look at any of these films, any of these crucial films from those years, those really seminal years, and they all – fed into 1999 and that's why i feel like it's sort of a culmination year where you're seeing almost 100 years worth i guess at that point of movie history just like slammed into one year you know it's it's interesting to me that several of the filmmakers of that year talked very openly about the graduate i mean the graduate was a big part of rushmore graduate was a big part of fight club when the when the filmmakers would talk about it all those movies fed into it but i do think with the possible exception of 2019 uh that <laughs> the end of the year movie end of the decade movie years are, can be pretty great because they are, I do think there's a weird subconscious thing maybe that they're all sort of we know we're, we're sort of flipping the calendar back or flipping the calendar forward in a way that's kind of dangerous and you don't know what's going to happen when you flip the calendar and whether you're going to get a paper cut or whether you're going to see a beautiful picture of a kitten on your calendar or something like that I don't know what that means by the way <laughs> um, but I, I don't know where I'm going with that um, yeah I mean you know look it's this, this is a really interesting time to be talking about movies specifically like today because I do think that this has been a tough year for the big studios. I and mean, the movies I've loved this year are, you know, Apollo 11 or Her Smell or Diane, which I loved and were fantastic experiences for me, but that I have a very hard time convincing others to see or to even hear about. And the studio movies are doing terribly, but I do think it's pretty exciting no matter what you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like, here's a movie arriving that's about the love of movies that is made by probably the most insanely pro-movie, pro-Hollywood filmmaker of my generation with two of the biggest stars of my lifetime and it's a big studio movie and it's coming. It almost feels like it was intentionally like we're going to drop this insanely pro movie movie in the middle of a terrible year for studios to remind everyone else what they, what, what movies used to be, you know, it's very, Mm -hmm. it's very telling to me. And I do think like I was, when I saw it, I was like, I am so glad that like, finally I'm seeing a movie that I know all my friends are going to go see. Like this is kind of an unavoidable movie, which we haven't had, I think this year studio wise, maybe, maybe us, but but otherwise, I don't know if there's been a studio movie that you feel like you have to see like like this one. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, I, I think, you know, there will always be those uh, filmmakers or those stars, you know, that certain people are keeping an eye on and will seek out. But, 
you know, a, a year where everybody's talking about something like being John Malkovich just doesn't like to your point earlier, doesn't doesn't feel like it's in the cards anymore. Do you feel like there are any, yeah. any filmmakers, uh, anybody who you're sort of always making sure to 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 keep an eye on and, and seek out whenever they have something new coming? Well, I think Jordan Peele is probably the closest that we're going to get to a, a superstar director at this point. I mean, he obviously he's only written and directed two movies, um, but they're both huge hits. And Us was sold so much on his name. Um, and he's on the cover of Rolling Stone, which is, you know, a, a sort of throwbacky form of celebrity. But I mean, I, I do think there are a lot of filmmakers. I think people are very excited for it's not going to be the biggest movie but i think there's a lot of people including myself who are very excited for greta gerwig to make little women um you know i think there are people who are you know there are a lot of filmmakers who have these very loyal followings now like ava duvernay or jordan peele or greta gerwig or guillermo del toro um though i think also a lot of the filmmakers who people show up for or, or obsess over are some of the ones that were starting in the late 90s i mean i think christopher nolan is probably you know, one of the few filmmakers you can really just guarantee the studios will give him whatever he wants. You know, Tarantino's another one. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's mo- movies don't make any money, but if you at all like movies and you're an executive and you get the chance to make one of his films, you are probably going to do everything you can to try to get him. You know, because they are they're smaller events, but they're, those are events. I mean, there are there are still filmmaker cults, and you know, I'm super excited. This is the second time I talked about Good Time, but I'm super excited for the. Adam Sandler Safty Brothers movie. I mean, I, I'm so excited for that. Like, can I like to the point where I'm like, can I go to Toronto this year and just crash on someone's couch to see it first? Um, so I, you know, I still get excited about filmmakers, but certainly the the kind um, the kind of like excitement that people would have about movies in general 20 years ago it has now shifted entirely to TV and to the internet. I think, and and it also seems like the conversation around movies that are successful, at least independent films that are successful, is, is shifted as well because The Farewell uh, is getting a lot of um, critical raves and it opened to, uh, I think it was like the best percentage um, of yeah. the whole year, but th- that's only in like four theaters. So it's like the expectations for a movie like that are obviously very different than what they would have been 20 years ago. Sure, yeah. Though I think, I think at least, I think, a twenty is a twenty four. I think they will. I think they're the last studio that can roll these movies out really effectively. Like I do think that's that movie is interesting because I do think and I'm seeing it tomorrow. I haven't seen it yet, but I do feel like you know every movie now just seems like a place for two weeks, and I do think that feels like a long burning movie. Um, and and like this, but it's like you know it's a word of mouth film and word of mouth films. There were a lot of them in 1999 because you could still be talking about Boys Don't Cry three months after it came out. You know, you could still say, hey, you can go see it. It's still playing, you know, whereas now it's just such a short window and people go, oh, I'll watch that when it's streaming. And they kind of forget about it unless it pops up on Netflix, which is which is troubling. Mm. Yeah, it's really turned into like a, a gauntlet of massive tentpole event movies. And there's yeah. there's really no air in the room for, for these smaller pictures to kind of get a foothold. Well, it also seems that culturally that going to the movies is not what it used to be. Uh, it, my, my wife has a dance school and all of her kids, they just don't go. Like if they go to the movies, it's like, you know, once or twice a year, if that. Um, and you talk yeah. to that, you talk to the kids and, uh, and they're all like, well, what do you do when you're in your spare time? Like, oh, we watch Netflix as if Netflix is its this own thing. You know, that can yep. mean anything watching Netflix. You know, there's so much on there, so much available to watch. Um, but they they talk about it like oh I just go home and I watch Netflix. Yep, yeah. There was that great New York Times piece a couple of weeks ago where they talked to all these different filmmakers and executives, and I, and I think maybe it was Tom Rothman. I can't remember, but I think he says you know 
young people don't talk about going to the movies. They go to a movie, which is like so different than when I was younger. And, you know, I'm not necessarily nostalgic for that. I mean, the thing is, I, I talk, I think a lot like, oh, wow, me and my friends would go to the movies every weekend and we go to the video store every weekend. And it's like, we watched a lot of garbage. <laughs> like, it's like, it's not as if, you know, I remember going, like, calling my friend and being like, hey, are we going to go see uh, the, that Richard Grieco movie? Like, there was some <laughs> terrible, like, spy comedy he made. Like, I think it was If Looks Could Kill or something. And, like, we went to go see that on opening weekend. Like, <laughs> it's like, there, were, there had to be something better to do. But I do think, yeah, I mean, the experience of movies, which is, I totally understand movies are expensive. People text. It can be annoying. And I live in L.A. where the movie theater going, the movie going experience is incredible. So I'm very spoiled. I know movie going is not always fun sometimes now. But I also think, boy, there is nothing more fun than having a communal experience. When a movie is going really well or uh, really badly, that is so much fun. My wife and I went to see Crawl and we went in the afternoon and we had a lot of fun, but it was disappointing because there was no one else there. And I was like, oh, I just wish there was an entire theater of people yelling back at the screen, like yelling, don't go in that. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I, those kind of experiences are so much fun to have. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Matt and I went and saw Midsummer a couple weeks ago and we were maybe two of maybe 12 people total. Uh, but there were these two guys in front of us who were texting the whole time. And then oh, no. like an hour in made the decision that this was not a movie for them and just got up and left. And it was, you know, yeah, I guess maybe they were just like going to a movie and they just didn't know what they were getting themselves into. And but that's also sort of a weird mindset for me to try to put myself in. I, I can't I don't know that I've ever just, you know, kind of gone to a theater and, you know, thrown a dart at the board to see just oh, I'll go see this now. And but walkouts are a fun experience, too. Like oh, I remember yeah. going to see Mother on open. I went to see Mother on opening day and it was there was a group of I, I mean, I. I my mother is older and she's very adventurous with movies, but it was a it was a group of people in about their 70s. And it was just part of the joy of that movie, I got to say, is watching them sit through the first half hour and grow increasingly more ab visibly agitated until they finally walked out. And that became that became part of the experience. It's not always like laughing at people or, or shouting back at the bad guys. Part of it's kind of eavesdropping or looking in the people around you and seeing how they're reacting, seeing how I mean, you know. Uh, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a with a sold out crowd on Thursday night, and there are certain sequences where the entire crowd was in unison about something funny or shocking. Uh, and there was also times where I looked over and saw someone like shaking their head at something angrily, and I'm like, this is this is the best way to see a movie, you know? It's like when you can, you know, I think when you can see other people getting excited or rolling their eyes, you're you're that's a a really fun way to experience art and to and to make you rethink what you're watching. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite movie memories ever was there was there used to be a, a, a small art house theater here in Providence and I went and saw what we do in the shadows and mm. at the at, at the end the the lights came up and this one guy stood up and declared to the entire crowd how disappointed and upset he was and I <laughs> I, I like to think that he thought he was buying a ticket to a a, a real documentary about people from New Zealand who thought they were vampires um, <laughs> but yeah it just like and everyone just kind of laughed at him and he, he storms out just grumbling and complaining to nobody it was it was great I had that once I went to see a screening it was a I think it was like a New York Film Festival screening or, or a press screening of um, room 237 that documentary about all the theories of what the shining is about and an hour into the movie, this guy just yells up, just stands up and yells, this is bullshit and walks out. And I'm like, 
you're doing this an hour in. Like, we've already had like an hour's worth of conspiracy theories about this that are completely ridiculous. But like something about like the fourth conspiracy movie theory in that movie just set him <laughs> off. I was, I wanted to talk to me like, at what point, sir? I'm just curious. Like, when did you decide? that this movie about people making up their own conspiracy theories about Kubrick, you know, faking the moon landing. At what point did you decide this was too much? (laughs) Yeah. I almost walked out of Bohemian Rhapsody, but anyway. Um, So, uh, you know, on our podcast, uh, we catch up on pop culture blind spots. And so we asked you if, uh, you know, if you had any pop culture blind spots or if you wanted us to recommend something and you had said that you had, had never really seen the X-Files. So um, I was wondering if you could talk about your history with it or lack thereof or your experience uh, of other people watching it and, and you ignoring it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I am uh, I am of a certain age. So I was a teenager throughout the like the teenage. The 90s were basically like, you know, I'm 43. So I spent a lot of my teenage years in the 90s. And I think when people talk, when people look back at their pop cultural histories, they tend to rewrite things a bit and try to make themselves more either self-deprecating or cooler than they were. And the fact is, I was kind of a stupid teenager. Like, I was really, and I was a stupid early 20-something, and I was very much political with my pop culture taste, which was, I was like, I'm not listening to that record if it's on a major label. I was like, I don't like shows that are trendy, which was, A, an incredibly dumb way to approach the world, and B was completely inconsistent because I would go see, you know, I go see a Warner Brothers movie, but I wouldn't buy like a Warner Brothers records artist. I was like, (laughs) no way, man. I'm buying everything off the Discord catalog and like I'm reading Fugazi fanzines. And I think my problem with the X-Files, if I'm being completely uh, accurate in my recollection, I think I was turned off by how quote unquote trendy it was, which was one, one thing. So I think I was like, yeah, I don't watch that show. It's on the cover of Rolling Stone. At the same time, I didn't watch a lot of TV in the 90s. Like I really when I when I was thinking about what these big blind spots are, it's definitely X-Files, but it could just as easily be ER, which I watched for maybe half half a season, or it could be Friends, which I barely, you know, I just I don't know whether it was just me or my friends, but when I was in college, which started in 94, TV was like yeah, it's like if it's Sunday night, you watch The Simpsons and you tape maybe something, but otherwise you went to the movies or you went out to a party or you just walked around campus. And and so a, I have a, I don't think I watched more than five TV shows regularly in the nineties. I watched twin peaks. I was obsessed with that, which again was on the cover of time magazine. Yet I was somehow turned off by the X files being on the cover of rolling stone, it, completely stupid teen stuff. Like I said, but like I watched, I watched uh, the Simpsons. I watched twin peaks. Yeah. I watched mystery science theater and a couple other shows like that. But I think I was just turned off to it. And I, I also just, I think I watched a couple episodes and I didn't really dig it back then. I was, I definitely tried at one point to like I'm gonna like the X Files. I just didn't quite, I didn't quite cotton to it at the time, which is weird because I love sci-fi and mysteries and conspiracy stuff. But you know, I think I was just, I think I was letting my taste be shaped by outside forces at that point in my life, which probably most teenagers do. It's like no one who's a teenager just gets up in the morning and throws on like a random band T-shirt. It's like you have planned it out. Like I am wearing my temple of the you know my my pearl jam shirt today and then tomorrow i'm wearing my uh nwa shirt i did not wear an nwa shirt when i was in high school but like you know it's like you're very much like you are a billboard for what you know your cultural tastes are kind of your own billboard and i was just like yeah man i don't watch tv and also i don't watch like mainstream tv i guess even though there was no alter- alternative to mainstream tv so yeah so that's my complicated answer for for 
how I missed out on a show that when I rewatched a couple episodes you recommended, I was like, oh, I love this show. <laughs> I would have watched this for years. It was so dumb, you know? Oh, I mean, I did the same exact thing with Buffy the Vampire Slayer a few years ago. I went back and, and sat down and watched. And kind of like you were saying, like I, I'm like, I'm making the decision to sit down and I'm going to like Buffy. And yeah. And, and yeah, I was like, I, I had no, my excuses for not watching it in high school were basically verbatim what you just said. Uh, yeah, Buffy, te- I skip I skip Buffy for the same reasons. Yep, totally. Yeah, teenagers are stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tony, what's your experience with the X Files? Uh, I was aware of it, and I think uh, so. I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons when I was a kid, um, which I've never let my parents uh, off the hook for. Uh, so you know, it wasn't <laughs> the X Files wasn't sort of in my house until I was of that. You know, when I it did hit a point where. I was watching The Simpsons on Sunday nights, and then The X-Files was on uh, later in the evening. Uh, and I, I kind of dabbled. I, I think I came to it certainly post um, the show's creative peak. I think I was sort of uh, maybe at the plateau before it really kind of took a dive in its last couple of seasons of the original air. But um, I was always struck by the the one-off episodes, the Monster of the Week episodes, which uh, the, the episodes we picked for you, Brian, we specifically avoided any of the convoluted conspiracy because even watching it through, it's it's kind of messy and confusing for no good reason. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of been my relationship to it. It's something I've always liked, but I've never, uh, I was never, you know, an X Files fan the way I knew a lot of uh, kids in high school and through college. Or how about you, Matt? Yeah, I I started. I think I watched watched pieces of it when it first started airing because I was like always in the pocket for. Anything that was monsters, sci-fi, horror, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but I never really, it wasn't like, you know, mandatory weekly viewing for me until I moved in uh, uh, with my first uh, roommate and he was obsessed with it. Uh, so we would watch it every Sunday. But I think I had like this weird superiority to it of like, oh, sure. I, I'm smarter than this show. And maybe that was me projecting that... <laughs> you know, being a jerk to my roommate, being like, I'm smarter than you. Uh, and what frustrated me back then uh, was the dynamic between, well, not the d- dynamic between, but uh, it was always frustrating to me that Scully was always the skeptic after she had seen so much shit. Right. <laughs> Aliens and monsters, and, and then she continued to be a skeptic. But that's the thing that I kind of came to love about the show. Uh, when I rewatched the whole thing, uh, in 2016, I went and watched the whole series. And that's that's the dynamic that I really love now because more often than not, Mulder is kind of an idiot. Uh, mm. And so you need that kind of push and pull between the two of them because Mulder, you know, the, the tagline for the show is, I want to believe, and that isn't always a good thing to right. want to believe, without, especially without any sort of evidence. Uh, and Mulder will... More than likely, you know, he could be a flat earther now. Um, so that's what kind of appealed to me watching the show now is 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 this push and pull between the two of them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you mention the mythology. I think for people who are listening who are a little bit younger, one one of the things about that was probably a turnoff to me was back in the mid early early to mid nineties. It's like when someone would say, "Hey, this show has a lot of episodes you've got to see." you couldn't always readily see them. I mean, I know they put them out on VHS, but I think I'm sure I was also intimidated by the fact that, oh, now I got to watch all these old episodes to figure out what's going on. I mean, I'm sure that was a factor in my thinking as well. And I think I was also probably 
I've I've learned to love the second season of Twin Peaks in a lot of ways, but I remember also being very disappointed at that time about how it turned out. So maybe I also felt stung, like I'm not going to invest, you know, hours and hours in some long thread TV show that doesn't have a payoff because I just didn't, you just didn't do that back then. It was like these kind of very intricate shows that have these big, long arcs. You couldn't really find them if you, to catch up, and also they just they weren't as common. You know, it was just sort of like uh, they they seemed a little more risky to get involved in, invested in as a viewer. Yeah, and, and you know, even like you were saying, the way we watch TV now, like you can always go back and catch those those great episodes that you missed, or or start a show from the beginning and catch up in time to be a part of the conversation when the next season starts. And I wonder if you know if X Files had hadn't happened in the time that it did, if if it would have just been a show about the mythology, if it were made a little later, uh, instead of all the, the Monster of the Week stuff, which offer sort of a, a bit of a break in between the the larger threads of the this conspiracy. Isn't yeah. that part of the problem of right now, though, is that most showrunners are like, well, this is actually like an 18-hour movie. And everyone's yeah. using this term all the time now when they're not really leaning into what makes a television series great. So let's actually get into the episodes that uh, sure. we recommended to you. And the first one is called Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, and that's from season three, and it aired on October 13th, 1995. Uh, it was written by Darren Morgan and directed by David Nutter. And David Nutter is actually uh, a TV veteran, and he's more recently known for directing a lot of uh, Game of Thrones episodes. Game of Thrones, yeah. Yeah. So what did you think of Clyde Bruckman? Uh, I like that one. You know, it was the first one I watched, the other ones you sent. I think I watched them in order that you sent them. Um, you know, it was it, it was interesting to me because I sort of I'm, – I'm guessing at the time, I do remember hearing that there was this episode of TV where Peter Boyle was really great. And I certainly – watching it now, that feels like the kind of performance you wouldn't – I didn't – I don't remember seeing a lot of on TV at that point. Um, it was – you know, Peter Boyle is so good in it, and it's just this very unshowy kind of like off-kilter turn – you know, he doesn't have a big hero moment. He doesn't have like this incredibly well-defined traditional 90s TV arc. And so I think I was really struck by how modern that one felt. Um, I mean, some of the little twists and stuff were a little um, a little a little tricky on that one. I think it was the part where like doesn't isn't that the one where Scully like gets a piece of the like uh, the guy's uniform and discovers what fabric it is and puts I'm like, all right. But it felt a little that felt a little TV detective to me. But I really liked um kind of the fact that they're going to build an entire hour around this kind of sad sack sort of mystery, you know, unknowable insurance salesman was really cool. And I thought Peter Boyle was fantastic. And he could, I, I, did he win an Emmy for that? Was that like a big, I, I know that was a big deal when it happened. I remember hearing about that performance. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Um, he won. Really he, good. he won the, uh, yeah, the, the Emmy for outstanding guest yeah. actor for that episode. Yeah. I, I think his performance is so great and watching it now, what I was sort of struck by is, it's sort of within the same you know spectrum of character that he later would do on Everybody Loves Raymond but like it wasn't like that stilted sitcom delivery and I, you yeah. know it, it, it's but it's the same sort of like sweet kind of crotchety old ballbuster character i mean the 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 jabs he gets in at Mulder are like the just the way he delivers them are so great you know whether it's suggesting that Mulder might die of autoerotic asphyxiation or um, <laughs> or the way he describes in real visceral detail the vision of his body decomposing and he's like well good night really, yeah yeah that was a very moving scene i mean that's that's yeah that's i'm, I'm sorry it's really but i just thought about that scene you were saying i was like oh yeah that scene really kind of floored me even though as with all things from the mid 90s the cgi is it's like really tough to look at sure it kind of looks like like uh, an apple 2c is having a meltdown but 
Um, yeah, no, it's really that, that all those dimensions of his performance are, are true. And also, you know, Peter Boyle, I know Peter Boyle was not Tom Cruise in, in the mid nineties, but you know, it was kind of a, I, you know, back then these were kind of a big deals when a big actor like that would be like, okay, I'm going to do a TV show guest turn, um, on a, on a kind of interesting kind of cult hit show. I imagine that must've been kind of a big deal. You know, I, I think that was part of the reason why it was kind of a big deal where it's like, Oh, this guy's doing this show. Um, maybe, maybe that's giving a little more, you know, credibility to some people who wouldn't have taken seriously before. Yeah. Yeah. And they do, you know, uh, other aspects of the, the episode, the way they sort of the the setup and punchline of, of the cops talking about this, you know, this spooky expert that they brought in and, and spooky was mm. Mulder's recurring nickname. And, you know, you expect that he's going to come through the door and then it's this absurd, you know, late night TV infomercial psychic and getting yeah. an opportunity to see Mulder in the in the role of skeptic um, is always fun. And it, it, uh, there's a couple of instances in the episodes where we're talking about here where we get to see his obsessions and his the things that define him through a, a slightly skewed lens and the way the show is was willing to not just play with tone but with the characters is always interesting darren morgan he kind of came in uh at the end of the second season i believe and he only wrote four episodes before um taking off and, and doing other things but those four episodes are are some of the most popular of the x-files episodes and that's because he kind of he's kind of irreverent towards the show. Like he understood the show so much that he could kind of tweak the formula to sort of make fun of itself. And his episodes were always really funny and self-aware uh, and kind of meta, but also always deeply sad. Uh, but yeah. he, he himself had like this big distrust of people like Mulder, <laughs> these really handsome kind of men uh, that felt like they were kind of floated through life with this ease. So that's why you kind of get the sense in this that he pokes fun at Mulder, but he does it. He doubles down even more in, in, in his other episodes, especially in Jose Chung from Outer Space, where Mulder's essentially a buffoon. But uh, all of his episodes are, are, are really great. But this one in particular, I think, signaled for the show that it was capable of doing more than just kind of scares and and its comedy was a little more um, nuanced as opposed to just kind of wacky hijinks kind of stuff. And yeah. and this kind of changed the course of the show after this where it really started opening it up and they could kind of do a lot of different tonal things and, and play with its filmmaking styles and really just kind of relish in the idea that the show could be whatever. Yeah, and you mentioned the filmmaking styles. And, you know, I was watching this through uh, Hulu and watching it on, you know, a, a new TV set. And this is this is maybe a very granular thing, but I was really impressed. Sometimes I watch old TV shows that have been kind of reformatted or, you know, sort of recut for to, to frame on new TVs. And it's a very it's a really, you know, not that this is breaking news that the X-Files was a visually really sturdy show, but it really was. It struck me as like, oh, this looks really good on this new TV. You know, what I mean, it really did feel like take away some of the fashion choices. And this could be this could be like a new show right now. You know, it, it visually it, it sort of fit the frame in a lot of ways. I know that they went back a few years ago and and remastered the whole show and they yeah. filmed in 35 millimeters. So I think for the remaster, they just had all these because it was cropped for television initially. So unlike Buffy, where when they did that for their uh, remaster, where you could see boom operators and crew <laughs> on either side of the the frame, they actually could use the frame as much as possible. So it gives it that great kind of widescreen feel. And, and and it makes great use of those kind of nighttime shots. Like that's the staple of the show where it's got like those 
massive lights and cranes in the background hoisted high up backlighting the mm. woods and all that stuff and fogging the shit out of everything huh. uh, and giving like this great kind of like real uh, focal plane with a lot of characters sort of silhouetted and stuff and that's kind of like the staple of the show and it borrows a lot from you know 70s thrillers and film noir obviously because you see a lot of the kind of interior lighting stuff too where maybe like especially in Clyde Bruckman, there's like a shot towards the end where Clyde Bruckman is kind of like, you know, there's like a light that just goes right across his face. Mm. It's really quite lovely. Yeah, no, it's shot really well. And it's, um, you know, and, and it's interesting you mentioned about a, that it was shot on film. And I just, now I'm thinking about like, oh, have I, I'm just trying to think of the shows from the 90s that I've occasionally rewatched now and really sort of thinking like, I wonder how some of them look under high def because I know, you know, obviously art ages and changes but i do think that it's it's stuff that's shot on digital is really especially in the 90s is is really dicey um some of it just looks terrible and some of, i mean there's you know like spike lee has that movie bamboozled that I, I don't know what he shot it on some sort of digital high depth at the time that looks really kind of it just it just looks it has this weird otherworldly look now where it just kind of looks unhealthy um but just shooting on film i guess was i don't know whether that was a tactical thing at the time or whether they that was something they had to fight for, but um, boy, it really helps. It looks it looks really good on just like my relatively modest Apple TV Hulu setup. Mm. So I'm glad they did that. Uh, so the next episode, uh, go, I guess, going in an order of how they were released uh, was Home, which was uh, the second episode of season four, aired on October 11th. Uh, and this episode is notorious for being. Uh, the first episode in the series to get a viewer discretion warning. The only episode of the original run to be rated TVMA, and then this only aired on Fox once. Um, I, I saw this for the first time uh, on FX, which they made this really big deal out of, you know, we're, we're airing the, the Band X-Files episode. It hasn't been seen on TV in, you know, four years or something. Um, and it is pretty gruesome. I mean, the, the, the cold open is... Uh, I forgot, you know, I remembered what the, the plot of the episode was, but until I sat down to watch it again, I had forgotten that it opens with the the brothers burying a, a newborn baby in their backyard. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, it's a real, real jarring intro. And then, you know, leading into the, the Sandlot game with the, the kids playing baseball and the, yeah. the blood coming up through the dirt. You, you had mentioned that you were a, a, a big Twin Peaks fan. And, and this this episode to me feels like this cross-section or this marriage of Twin Peaks and kind of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I mean, and I, and I, I remember when I was watching, I was like, boy, this is like fairly, ex I mean, the, the blood and gore, I guess now I can't even tell anymore what's on. I, at a certain point, you just stop, you don't really quite realize what's violent and what's not anymore because once you're at a certain age, you're like, I'm allowed to watch whatever I want. So, you don't, you know, when you're younger and you're seeing an R-rated movie, you're not supposed to, you're very conscious of how different it is. Than everything else you've watched but i was struck like i i was sort of struck i was like wow that is a really grody um opening and i thought the baseball scene was you know was equally uh gnarly is the word i'd use as well i really i really liked it though I mean, this was also like this to me was really just um pulpy in a way that i really enjoyed i don't i don't love gore or violence i just but when i do i want it to be done really well and have a slight element of if not comedy, then some sort of melancholy to it. And this sort of had both. And, and it was. There's a, definitely a Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of vibe to, I mean, the weird family itself. And and just, like, I also love the fact that, like, you know, they 
they sort of set up that local cop. You're like, well, this guy's going to be their ally for the entire episode. It's like, nope. And the other cop, you're like, well, this guy will be the guy. You're like, nope. It's like it was very um, unsparing and, and basically killing everyone off that it needed to. Yeah, the, the gore struck me as well, um, You know, especially remembering that this was on a, a network TV show. It wasn't on yeah. particularly late. And the other thing that I was struck by and sort of plays through in, in all these episodes is um, – you know, if you're just watching these four, I would wonder if they ever actually arrest anybody or if they just end up killing everybody at the end of every episode. Because it's yeah. the, the monster uh, or the criminal who it tends to usually be some sort of monster or something. Uh, yeah, there's I, I, I guess part of me is like I want the courtroom scene with the with the, the demon possessed guy who. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. And like this one, too, the, you know, the Mulder's sort of. Um, his his constant uh, sense of humor, you know, making the the Mayberry reference, and then of course Sheriff Taylor rolls up, and his 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 uh, deputy's name was Barney, uh, and Mulder reacts as uh, not like a professional, but <laughs> like we like like we would have responded to it. Right. It, it's, <laughs> the ending is really interesting too, because now I'm totally blanking on what song they use, but I was struck by. You know, I, I was struck by the fact that they get away with it, but also I forget, and I forget which tune they use. But you know, it was that was that really was. Again, I know I say I didn't lot, watch a lot of TV in the '90s, but I I've since caught up, so I'm aware of a lot of it. You know, that was a pretty. You know, that was before pop music was popping up in every TV show easily. You know, it was expensive to get the rights to songs and risky, and a lot of artists didn't want to do it. And that was a that was a really cool use. And I can't, is it Frankie Valley? I can't remember what song that it's playing on the radio as they drive off. Yeah, I can't remember uh, the song or the artist. I do know that the the singer who made that song famous, they wanted to use his version. And I think they sent him the script and he's like, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> yeah, so, you don't want mutant families to be your the first thing people think of right, when right. you watch your, Yeah. Yeah, so they, I think they just used a different version of it. Um, oh, okay. And that's become such a, a horror staple too. It, it, it was used in Us too, this, like this ironic pop song while violence yeah. is happening in the background. But yeah, no, it was a really, it was a really good episode. And again, it just, as you guys said, like I didn't feel any need to be plugged into a bigger mythology. It wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was missing anything, you know, which, which, which made it all the more enjoyable. I mean, I, I like the fact that all four of these feel like they're not B sides in terms of quality, but they are these sort of like, I'm guessing these sort of digressions from the big, from the big plot. And it, and it must've been interesting watching these shows live. I mean, or, or it's not live, but as they aired, like how much of these shows, you know, how would they schedule these episodes in to kind of give, you know, a relief to the audiences or, or to, to slow down the story, to slow down the overarching mythology. Cause you know, I could see dropping in episodes like this throughout a season would be a really effective way to sort of ratchet tension up and down. I think the majority of the episodes per season were Monster of the Week episodes. I think yeah. there's really only like five or six per season that were mythology based. Oh, really? And sometimes there'd be like uh, little tags at the beginning or end where that would sort of tie into what was happening to them. And I'm sure you noticed that in the episode Drive at the end that they had a different um, FBI director that they were dealing with. Yeah, and even yeah. at the beginning of that one, they talk about, you know, their. They're almost grounded and were kicked off the yeah. X Files, and that you know that's dealing with the aftermath of the movie, where the movie ends in Antarctica, and Mulder sees a, a giant UFO come out of the ice and fly away. And but but the funny thing about the show is like, yeah, they got kicked out of the the X Files, but that probably happens like <laughs> six or so times throughout the course of the show. <laughs> that the thing about the mythology is like, it's really interesting for the first few seasons, and then it keeps just 
turning in on itself so frequently that it's hard to keep track of a lot of the double crosses and changes and and characters that come back to life. And in the most recent seasons, which aired, I believe, in 2016 and then just last year, um, (laughs) the mythology is just so, so ridiculous. And, And like sometimes you watch and you're like, oh, like you can sort of buy into that ridiculousness because you're like, well, this is the X-Files, but it's hard for anyone to really wrap their head around any of it, I think. It's yeah. a, a, a 11 seasons in anyway. Well, you mentioned the movie, and one thing that's interesting, I didn't think about this till now, that even though I was not an X-Files watcher in the 90s, I went to that movie on opening weekend because it was a movie. You know what I mean? It's like this weird, like, that was how much I wanted to see every movie that came out at that point in my life because I was like, well... I don't know if I'm going to watch this trendy TV show, but wait, there's a movie now? Well, I must see that. You know, I mean, I don't know whether in my dumb teenage, early 20-something mind that legitimized it more, but it's weird that I would go see, on opening weekend, a movie based on a TV show that I'd had very little interest in, you know, which I think it speaks to just how, you know, there was a certain section of the movie-going population that was just needed to see everything, just wanted to see everything that was out there as long as it was a movie, you know? Mm -hmm. So next up, we've got Bad Blood which was released on February 22nd, 1998. This is from season five. This is episode 12. And this is, uh, actually, I hadn't realized this as I was coming up with this list, but this is one of two episodes written by Vince Gilligan, who went on to create Breaking Bad. Uh, And we can talk Mm. more about that with Drive, which is where he uh, worked with Brian Cranston for the first time. Uh, so Bad Blood we picked because it is, you know, one one of the examples of the show being just a flat out comedy. You know, in terms of talking about uh, an audience's expectations week to week, uh, this this episode opens with Mulder chasing someone through the woods and driving a stake through their heart, only to find out that he's killed a fake vampire. And as I was watching it now, I'm wondering what would happen if like a Law and Order episode with if that if a Law and Order episode opened with like Ice T killing the wrong guy as a joke. It's <laughs> like it's such a um, such a weird tonal shift. But this show did that week to week. You never really knew if you were going to be getting, you know, a. Uh, a hard procedural or something wacky like this he said she said recounting of uh vampires in a small southern town yeah and it kind of cheats the cold open thing because usually like it'll do that immediate res thing where like you know we'll see Mulder killing this guy and then it'll go back and fill in all the detail but instead it goes to right to the next seed and they have to deal with the ramifications of him killing it and then sort of does like oh well this is what happens but it uses like a a Rashomon kind of uh, storytelling mm-hmm. device in order to to uh, comment on on what happened. Yeah, and it's really fun to get to see their perception of one another cranked up to eleven. Mulder's Scully is so irritated with him, and Scully's Mulder is just the most annoying human being on the planet. No, comedically, it was I think of all four of these, it was the funniest. I think like, and I think having the you know having Luke Wilson who was pretty big at that point. I mean, it was becoming a big star at that point and who's very, very good in it. But I definitely feel like, you know, another testament to the show is that having not watched it that much and picking up on this episode is that those two, you absolutely get their dynamic right away. And obviously when you have a show that's that many seasons in, you kind of need that. But no, it was, it was very funny. And um, just the whole, I actually even thought like I, I, it could have gotten too goofy, but even stuff like the massage, bed and all that stuff is very funny and i also thought it was a great it was a great opening i mean i love the fact the kid wasn't a vampire i thought it was just like it was just like oh this is like what you can do in two to three pages of tv writing to hook a viewer mm-hmm. um and i it, it made me miss um you know it made me realize that cold opens are 
they're not gone, but they're kind of not what they used to be. You know, shows don't have those built-in commercial, you know, a lot of the prestige and streaming, or prestige, I hate that word, but, you know, cable and streaming don't always have those built-in credit sequences where you get that break or that first commercial slot. And I was like, oh, I do kind of miss a nicely structured, like, network 45-minute TV drama where it's just like, you know, you got to grab you in the first two minutes before the credits start so you won't flip channels. And I... I really, I, I kind of miss that sort of craftsmanship of TV writing a bit. Well, it's funny you say that because I think the modern show that does that so so well is Better Call Saul, and that's also written oh, by yeah. by Vince Gilligan. Uh, and and those cold yeah. opens are amazing. Yeah. Breaking Bad had great opens. Yeah, I mean, especially that second season was that was that the one with the plane crash? Yeah, you're slowly seeing. Yeah, I mean that was that boy. That show really was great. Um, that that was pretty spectacular. Yeah, and I and I'm guessing that must have been stuff that uh he learned from or you know executed early on in X Files. Yeah, I, I I and I definitely agree. The the art of the cold open is is one I miss as well. I I, I uh. I haven't gotten around to watching Star Trek Discovery yet, but I can't imagine it has any episodes that open with a handful of the crew playing a poker game before whatever space <laughs> emergency happens, like Next Generation right. used to have. And yeah, I, I mean, Luke Wilson is is great in this. Mulder's introduction of him with like the the over the top drawl and the buck teeth, or uh, you know, exa- an, an exacerbated Scully weighing the guts, and they're just like sliding off the the scale. And again, to your point, like I was like, oh my god, I can't believe we're laughing at a pile of raw intestines on this network TV show. I I think what works about the buck teeth gag too is that in another show, from Scully's perspective, they probably wouldn't show her having an attraction to him. But she does, when she's explaining, when she's telling her story, she's still very much attracted to him. Mm -hmm. And they double down on it when they switch it to Mulder. It was just like, well, yeah, you were attracted to him, but he was an idiot and he, he, he had buck teeth. The thing about the teeth, I just realized now this, this airs, this was 98. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this aired like toward the tail end of like this insane 90s vampire culture. Because if you think about that whole decade had started, I mean, I guess the Coppola movie, the Coppola Dragon movie didn't start it, but you had that. You had the Anne Rice books. You had the Tom, you'd interview the vampire. You had Buffy. And it does feel like this is the logical extension of like we've gone from the early 90s, mid early mid 90s, like goth, baroque, you know, slightly oversexed, pansexual vampire to like. The small town pizza boy vampire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like it's it really kind of feels like this is kind of commenting on what had been going on that whole decade, and that this was going to take vampires trying to treat them as if it really were like what would a real small town full of vampires be like? It wouldn't be like glamorous and sexy. It would be kind of rainy and shitty, and you know, with the exception of Luke Wilson, no one would be like super attractive, and they'd be kind of you know they have to get up and move the next day. I mean, I, it, it is kind of funny to look at it in that bigger context of '90s vampire culture. Sure, yeah, and I think this is the same year Blade came out too. So, oh yeah, <laughs> That's right. um, I I do think that uh, we haven't really talked about the music at all for the show, but I do think this episode maybe leans a little too hard and like, isn't this wacky, guys? Because uh, it's a little mm. too too playful. I, I mean, it's not as bad as like CBS procedurals, which are just like, you know, ain't I a stinker kind of uh, musical yeah, cues. Yeah. But uh, it does lean a little hard on that. But most of the time, the music I think is 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 pretty great, pretty atmospheric and moody and textural. Yeah, is it, uh, Mark Snow, I think, is yeah. the yeah, yeah, he's great. Which is funny because when I was a kid and watching this, I was confused. I was like, "Is this the same guy that sings that Informer song, that Snow guy?" Well, it is, right? <laughs> I think it is, right? <laughs> well, but it's, it's funny though because you mentioned Snow and uh, and '90s pop culture. It's like the two things that should age this show the worst. 
at least in the four episodes that I watched, are the music and the, some of the pop culture references. But I think the music were, I mean, eventually the, at certain points, the music synthesizers hit this very mid to late nineties, tinny weird synthesizer sound that also happened on twin peaks at times. And it's a little cheesy, but I also think it's so melodramatic that it works. And the pop culture references aren't a lot of them, but when they are there, they're kind of, it's not like they're, they're talking about cool stuff. Like it's not like they're talking about like, Hey, did you just see Pulp Fiction? Isn't that cool? It's like, they're just invoking things kind of that they don't fully, that are just, they're just sort of, sort of invoking random pop culture things that they don't entirely understand. So like they don't talk about the Macarena, but there is some sort of weird thing in one of those episodes where it's a fleeting pop culture reference. And it's like, Oh, this is how two academic kind of squares in the nineties who are consumed with work would use pop culture. Just, just as saying they're trying to name drop inaccurately. You know, they're not like, it doesn't feel like they're, they're resting entire plot points or conversations on the pop culture of the day. Right. I, I think another thing about the music is that just a few years ago, you might say like, oh, th- that sounds kind of dated. But like now, like everybody's doing this again and they're using the same kind of synthesizers to replicate Twin Peaks and, and the X-Files. So it's kind of come back around in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. No, if it had like a rock score, you'd be like, what's rock music? What is this doing? <laughs> it's like it's a... Uh... What am I like? My uncle in Orlando's like uh, town get, townhouse. Like, what is this weird old person music? <laughs> yeah, no, I, right. Like, I, I think that sound has certainly in the last five ten years come back. All right. So the last episode we we watched was Drive, which came out later in in 1998. Uh, it was at the beginning of season six. It was the second episode again, written by Vince Gilligan, um, and Brian Cranston is the guest star here. And this is where the two of them met. Obviously, later on, they went on to work on Breaking Bad together. Uh, and this is the episode that sold AMC on casting Cranston. He had sort of, after this, you know, start in Malcolm in the Middle and became known as this really goofy TV dad. Uh, and AMC, I guess, didn't didn't buy that he could deliver on what Breaking Bad needed him to deliver. He's kind of a jerk in Seinfeld. That is that is true. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, he, uh, Vince Gilligan kind of used this episode as a calling card for Brian Cranston to, to work as Walter White. And uh, the episode here is about a couple in, I guess, is it Utah or Nevada, uh, are exposed to this low frequency that the, the government has been using for communicating with their submarines. Uh, there's a power surge, and basically it affects their something in their bodies so that if they're not moving west at a certain speed, their heads explode. Cranston plays a character named Crump who hijacks Mulder's car. And it's uh, a lot of it is just, you know, the two of them stuck in the car together. As I was talking about earlier with with episodes that sort of sort of uh, reframe Mulder's uh, tendencies, this was interesting to see him put in close proximity with another conspiracy theorist, but someone who's a little more extreme. And you sort of see the the dark side of of a lot of Mulder's impulses. In this case, Crump is, you know, an anti-Semite who is convinced that he is a victim of a, a Jewish-led government conspiracy. So, you know, sort of the, it, it, it struck me as almost like a Indiana Jones Belloc moment where, you know, <laughs> right. Mulder just needed a little bit of a push to be like a full-on, like far-right fringe lunatic. <laughs> it's topical, but it really is like, you know, sort of we talk about the movies of 1999 sort of being timely still. It's like, this was this was what was I mean this is a really good episode for a gazillion reasons like it's of the four you sent me this was you know the best I also know that this is like a you know that's like it's like saying Abbey Road is a good Beatles record like this is <laughs> I know a lot of people really cherish this episode um, and so I'm glad I finally excuse to watch it um, but yeah certainly the fact that it was plugging into 
what had been like to all of these sort of weird extreme um, conspiracy groups that had popped up in the 90s and then really taken root on the internet by then, I thought was really smart. And I also, this episode does a lot of things that are really great. Um, I think one thing is that, one thing I love is that like Brian Cranston has no redemptive catharsis moment. You know, there's no like, you know what, you were right and I'm bad for, you know, and I'm, I'm going to rethink my worldview. He doesn't really... He just dies. Like he doesn't really, you know, he's like he doesn't really doesn't really come to any sort of t- traditional TV um, kind of resolution. And also, I like the fact that I feel like you're being set up for like that he is a conspiracy nut and there's no actual cons- government thing hurting him. And even though his actual um, statements about who controls the government are totally wrong, he's not wrong in that this is caused by this that, that he is being tortured by the government in some way like i like the fact that it's like nope there's actually this frequency going on near his house like this is not some weird you know other thing he's making up or imagining like there is you know the government does hurt people (laughs) you know it's and this is totally what happens when you have that belief and you're it's proven right and you're already um you know prone to extreme statements I, i think the other through line with the other episodes too is that oftentimes on this show there really is no catharsis or happy ending or or any kind of definitive conclusion uh like in the previous episode bad blood they basically discover that the whole town is full of vampires and then they just kind of the vampires just leave yeah (laughs) and Mulder and scully are just kind of like oh well i guess that happened and even in um home like you said the you know the bad guys get away and in this one you know brian cranston doesn't make it and they're kind of left to deal with like well we just went through this awful experience. And that's more often than not the conclusion of most episodes of this show, especially with the yeah. with the mythology. There's really never any kind of like, ah, finally, we have some answers to this. Every answer leads to some bigger question. Yeah, this isn't a this isn't a story about aliens that has that kind of upbeat ending like a you know close encounters you have Richard Dreyfus agonizing over this thing that he's become obsessed with and then he gets that that moment and he's proven right and he gets to go off with them the implications of Mulder being right are staggering and terrifying yeah and I and I really like the way they handled you know there's no shot of Cranston about to die leaning over his steering wheel imparting some kind of regret or you know he doesn't get like a cool send out line he just kind of dies you know it's, it's, it's kind of actually really handled in a kind of shocking way where he doesn't get that big tv he doesn't even get like a big tv villain uh sort of send-off moment um and i also i love i mean i as someone who likes like very high concepty kind of action thrillers i very much like you know i like the fact that they they make a joke about speed right they, they uh, make a joke about speed at one point right? yeah yeah when uh once he sort of explained when when Cranston explains to Mulder that his wife was fine as long as he was going so fast. Yeah. Mulder says, I think I've seen this movie before. Yeah. And I love the fact that you can just see someone someone saying to Vince Gilligan. Yeah. But people are going to think this is like speed. And so he's just like, yeah, just make a joke about speed. It's like, and <laughs> right. It. And it's a really cool and it's a very cool concept. And I also, you know, the, the you know, even like the tiny little pop boiler moments like Mulder's grabbing the other car at the gas station and leaving a note and that being revealed it was really good i mean it's just it's very it's it's what breaking bad you know which i i really do think like breaking bad of all the shows that we've all talked about in the last 20 years i mean i do think breaking bad and the sopranos are the two i, I think breaking bad is 
is as good as The Sopranos. I think they're kind of I just marvel at the storytelling in that show and how completely flab free it is. Um, and I think you can see a lot of those elements in this episode. Just between these two episodes, Bad Blood and Drive, you could see the versatility and Vince Gilligan's writing. And like yeah. you could see that across the board for all of his episodes. He does, you know, straight horror, thrillers, broad comedy. Like if you wanted to go back and, and watch some more episodes without watching the full show, uh, I definitely recommend watching all of his episodes. Him and Darren Morgan, because Darren Morgan's episodes are obviously like the more meta, uh, irreverent episodes, but they're all great. We didn't talk about the writers of Home, and that's Glenn Morgan and James Wong, and they kind of, yeah. they wrote a lot of stuff together. Glenn Morgan is brothers with Darren Morgan. Um, he brought his brother onto the show. And, uh, and, and they also did more thrillery kind of episodes. Uh, we didn't talk about Chris Carter at all, and he's the creator of the show. And he does have a lot of great episodes, um, especially early on, because he would always do all the mythology stuff. There'd always be like the pilot, the 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 premiere and the finale were always his, and then a few in in between. And, but he did do a few standalone episodes, and one of them is Postmodern Prometheus, and I recommend that one to you. That's really okay. good. That's a it's kind of black and white. It's sort of like a Frankenstein kind of story. Uh, but that's to get a sense of Chris Carter without you know, digging into the mythology stuff. But like the mythology episodes in the most recent seasons are pretty, uh, they almost feel like parodies of the show. <laughs> it's really strange. But he's also trying to be a little more topical in the more recent seasons. So he brings in like this character that's sort of like a stand in for, um, what's the Infowars dude? Oh, Alex Jones. Oh, yeah. Alex Jones. Yeah. So he has a character that's sort of like a stand in for that. But obviously there's some parallels between what he believes and what Mulder believes and um, and, and we haven't brought him up at all, but like the main uh, antagonist of the show is the cigarette smoking man, and he kind of comes right. and goes. I'm sure you've heard about the cigarette smoking man. Um, yeah, he's in the movie too. I mean, yeah. I definitely, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the episode that kind of lays out his origin story is really interesting. Uh, the lone gunmen are uh, sort of secondary characters that pop up. They have a, a conspiracy magazine, um, mm. and, and they're sort of, uh, you know, some of Mulder's you know, resources that he'll go to on, on certain investigations. And I think Vince Gilligan was the one who created the, there's a spinoff show based on them that I think lasted two weeks. It's so funny. Cause I, I have like, when I was doing book research, I have, you know, I have hundreds of magazines. I have so many premier magazines from the nineties and early aughts. And I have almost the entire, like, 1997 to 2002 run of entertainment weekly. I mean, I also worked at the time, but I found when I was doing research, I, I stumbled upon this article about the lone gunman's ratings problems. And it was like the lone gunman only got 14 million viewers last week. Is it in trouble? <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. If I, if anything got 14 million viewers today, like it'd be in the front page of the New York Times. It's just like it's such a huge it was such a huge like I was like, oh, wow. TV ratings used to be so big and you used to have to get like 21. million. It's like, are we going to get are we going to get on the season? It's like, I don't know. Last week, we only had 19.5 million viewers. We might right. be in trouble. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely remember Lone Gunman and I was covering TV for EW at that point. So I think I, I think I may have interviewed someone. I mean, I, I know I had to write some stuff about Lone Gunman at that point because I worked on, on rating stuff at EW then. But yeah, it was certainly, you know, and it's certainly, I, I remember there's also a very weird B side that connects the X-Files to the 1999 book, which is, I don't know if, do you guys remember a show called Freaky Links? No, no. Freaky Links, I think it was a 2000 season 2000-2001 Fox show that was the first thing the Blair Witch Project creators did basically was selling Fox on a TV show um, and I want to say it was 
I want to say it was Devin Sawa, but I could be forgetting. But it was like it was like this big like X Files. It was sold as like this big X Filesy kind of uh, conspiracy show that involved. I think it involved the internet. I can't remember, but I had to like write about that show in 2000. Like I had to like go interview them in LA and stuff like that. <clears throat> but it was definitely like there was. I remember at that time there was a whole slew of kind of like X Files ripoffs in the late 90s, even to the early aughts, right? I mean, I feel like there was a whole bunch of. Once that show became a hit, it felt like it kind of spurred a little cottage industry of those kind of shows. I believe there was even Baywatch had a spinoff called Baywatch Nights, which Baywatch was, Nights, yeah. which was like a, a paranormal, like David Hasselhoff investigated like paranormal stuff. <laughs> and there was also like- a soap opera called I think it was Passions that also had like monsters and vampires and stuff. It had Timmy, yes. It had the yeah, I remember yeah, Passions, yeah. Oh but, yeah, 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 yeah. Who wow. sadly passed away a couple years after it aired. But yo, yeah, Passions. I remember Passions. That was definitely like, <laughs> that was a show I watched like two episodes of, and I was like, I'm never going to stop watching this. And then I never watched it again. But yeah, no, that was definitely like, I think the combination of Twin Peaks and X Files definitely, you know, and Buffy, I guess, quote unquote, strange TV kind of took hold at that point. Uh, all right. So, so based on on your experience watching these four, uh, do you think you're going to, you know, go back at some point and, and maybe revisit more of the X Files? I think I would. I think I would probably just because I, I do love Breaking Bad, and even though I'm 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 years behind on Better Call Saul, I, I like that too. I really do like Vince Gilligan, and it's certainly, you know, it's like whenever you get interested in something in culture, it's always fun to go back and sort of figure out, you know, where this person got started cooking these ideas up. So I definitely would rewatch it. And I think also, it is now it's it's on Hulu. It's like, so, and I, and I, and I like having, you know, I, to be honest, I watched all four of these while doing all my kids laundry. And I'm just like, I need a good laundry show. Like you <laughs> sit we're folding laundry and that's not a ding on the show. It's just a lot of TV shows now just require this immense level of concentration and, you know, knowledge and just, and it's, it's, I, I don't think I could watch Fleabag and do laundry because you're just looking at every single, but you know, the X-Files is, if you get up to pick up a spare sock here or there, it's like it's you're you're still you're not missing out. You're still very much t- uh, caught up with it. And I, I like those kind of shows. It also really really made me want to watch um, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Oh, okay, which, oh, I hear that's great. Which I, which I definitely watched a few episodes of. I think it was one of the first shows Netflix had. Like I think I remember when we first got Netflix a long time ago. I suddenly was watching that and the Rockford Files quite a bit because it was like that was it was like that or you know, whatever five movies they had at the time. Um, but now I think it's not on, it's not streaming anywhere, but there's, I, and I just recently listened to this Tarantino, Eli Roth interview where they were talking about the first Kolchak like TV movie. And I was like, I really want to watch that. It looks awesome. Um, so I might actually sort of check those out. Cause I like, you know, as I get older, I like monster movie stuff and, and goofy monster of the week stuff. Just a lot more. It just, I, I like my pop and my, my popcorn and my pulp stuff a lot more as I hit middle age, I guess is what kind of happens. And it's why every middle-aged dad starts reading Elmore Leonard books by the beach. It's just, you just <laughs> want slightly more breezily digestible, but still kind of grown up feeling stuff. Sure. Yeah. I, I think, um, revisiting these, I'd like to go back. I know I, a few years ago, my wife and I were watching through it and, uh, got to a point where, um, we just got distracted and, and didn't finish it. But uh, I mean, I think I've seen most of the show. I think there were a couple of the middle years that I missed and um, all this Twin Peaks talk that's come up uh, throughout our, our conversation. I'd like to revisit that as well. I don't think I've ever watched more than I think I've only seen the first season. So I certainly haven't watched the newer episodes or Firewalk with me. So 
aka the greatest thing ever <laughs> yeah i mean now that there's like a through line for the entire i mean they were you know I, as someone who really did was obsessed with twin peaks when it first aired the fact that there's now this entire you know decade spanning um sort of selection to watch i, I can't i i would i wish i had the time to just rewatch the entire thing front to back i did when i finished the book one of the things that was really irritating about the book is i just couldn't watch anything because i was working on the book for like two and a half years and it just eats up all your time and then as soon as i think like the i think the week i turned in the finished manuscript this january or february i watched the new twin peaks and i just watched it pretty much like every night just for 18 nights in a row and i absolutely just i was so caught up i absolutely loved it it was just gratifying it was very i thought it was deeply moving but it was also it was just sort of like, oh, yeah, this show that I was obsessed with when I was 14 or 15, I was kind of right to think this was great. Like, it, it turned out to be pretty good. It had some bumpy periods, but I bet even those bumpy periods now are, are probably really good in retrospect. That's that's certainly like if I had a month to do whatever I wanted um, culturally, um, I would probably just sit and rewatch all those front to back. I would love to watch the entire Twin Peaks saga in one kind of relative sitting. If you're looking for another older show to catch up on, I, I want to recommend The Prisoner. Oh, I bought. Yeah, I went through a little mini prisoner phase. I don't think I ever finished it. I think like in the whenever they put it out, they, whenever they finally put it out on VHS in the U.S. That's how old I am. I think I watched them. That was like early to mid '90s, I guess. Um, but there was also, and then there was the AMC remake, right? Yeah, which so is that, ve- very think, different. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I may have rewatched the Cole. I think I may have rewatched the original Prisoner pilot, like when the new one came out. Yeah, uh, but the, if you haven't seen the finale, it's just. It's like Twin Peaks in the sense that it just feels so new and fresh while yeah. also feeling oddly connected to the 60s, which mm. I know is, is sort of like a, a contradiction, but it, it it oddly does all that. But it's strange to watch now and be like, oh, wow, this was made in the 60s because it, it's it's so weird. It's so unbelievably weird. But that's a show that I really love. I should rewatch that. I, I, and that's one of the things I watched it. I watched a lot of it so long ago that I absolutely don't remember it. I started really getting. It's weird talking about blind spots. A show I I only watched a couple of times until my first daughter was born was The Twilight Zone, which I watched at comic book conventions when I was a kid. Like they would screen Twilight Zone episodes. I mean, I, I am like I said, I'm 43, and these were like mid 80s comic book conventions I was going to. But I never had like the insane affinity or or and and then like for a year, once my first kid was born, I was just up late all night like feeding. I was just watching every Twilight Twilight Zone episode I could. And then I was like listening to Rod Serling give campus speeches in the early 70s. I got really (laughs) obsessed with it. Um, And I still have intentionally only watched half of it. I'm just like, I'm not watching, I'm not doing the whole thing where I watch this entire show over the course of a year. I'm, I will just put a random episode on like once a month and it's a very enjoyable way to watch it. And it's, you know, it's very hit or miss, but man, the good stuff in that show is, is wonderful and it holds up so 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 well it's remarkable how well that show holds up yeah absolutely uh for for a long time i don't know if we've done it the last couple of years but um my wife and i sort of like got together uh at a new year's party and that first that the next day spent you know 12 hours just in front of sci-fi channel watching the twilight zone marathon and for a long time it was always that was our plan we're gonna get up make a like a big gross heavy brunch for New Year's uh, Day and just sit in front of the TV and watch Twilight Zone all day. It's yeah, it's never it's never a bad idea to revisit the Twilight Zone, even if it's a weaker episode. There's always something in there to to really dig into. Yeah, I I put it on for my girls a couple. For my my kids are eight and five, and we, I will just put on a couple episodes and I'll be like, I'm just watching the Twilight Zone. You can walk in and watch some of it. And 
they they definitely um I thought they were really we watched the one where the mannequin comes to life and they really loved that. They they would actually go around quoting it. And then like <laughs> my daughter my little my older daughter, I was like, Oh, this one's about a talking doll and she's like, I wanna watch that and then that night I was like when it was like twelve thirty at night, and I was still still comforting her, I was like, "I think you're not ready for the Twilight Zone, especially not the talking doll." Yeah, like, killer. Though that that said, she will during the day quote that episode sometimes as a joke, so it had some sort of impact. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> All right, uh, I think uh, I think that does it. Um, b- before we let you go, um, you know, uh, where can uh, listeners find you on on social media if they want to? keep up with the stuff you're writing you you just wrote a great piece at the ringer about quentin tarantino thanks yeah um yeah so where can our listeners find you online uh i very begrudgingly tweet at at brian raftery that's Mm -hmm. uh, because i just i I sort of stay off twitter now and just do it for blatant self-promotion like when i do write a ringer story um but and then uh, I guess I don't know I've I've uh, I, I'm I'm just sort of doing some freelance right now so I'm just sort of writing a little bit here and then but yeah I've been really enjoying doing stuff for the Ringer it's a really, it's you know it's I know I've known a lot of those people for a while and they're super talented and super smart and I I'm very I'm just glad there's like another really viable smart pop culture website out there and sort of network so mostly doing some stuff for them but um but yeah it's at Brian Raftery but but again. I mostly tweet stuff I write and occasionally some dumb puns, but now even dumb puns are just like seized upon in some stupid way. Oh, on sure. Twitter, where I'm like, why do I even bother doing this? Who is this for? Right. And uh, you had mentioned your, um, you know, your archives of, of, of movie magazines uh, on Instagram. You, you've post you posted some fun artifacts uh, around the time the book came out and in the weeks afterwards. So, um, yeah, I should do more of those. I ha- it's just it's so much, um, and I, it's like it's just I, I have so many old '90s magazines, um, and sometimes I just get like almost frozen. When I'm like, which one should I do? Because I have so much um, fun stuff. But I, I should do I should do more of those. I've I've been kind of lax on that. But yeah, I do have I do put up some old EW articles, and because a lot of those magazines are not archived well on uh, at all. I mean, a lot of those magazines, and I used to work at that magazine. They've done they did some pretty terrible jobs in keeping up their archives online. So. Um, a lot, there's so many great, you know, one of the joys of writing the 1999 book was just the research and just buying an old issue of premiere and just finding some arcane nugget that people forgot about and then following up on it. So, yeah, I mean, I certainly, I, if anyone wants to come over and borrow a bunch of old premiere or entertainment weeklies, I can, uh, d- DM me and I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> where I am. it would make everyone in this house a lot happier if I didn't have 5,000 magazines sitting around me at all times. That's awesome. Uh, Speaking of EW, I remember uh, whatever summer Titan AE came out, they had like a running tally or they did an article that tallied up uh, like the, the kill count of the summer blockbusters. And they they with it, the asterisks that Titan AE was uh, not counted because an entire planet was wiped out. And I remember just being huh. of the age where that was the funniest thing I'd ever read. So I don't know if you were there at the time or if that was your handiwork, but. I did, you know, I, I, I don't know if I did that year. I did do a summer body count one year, and it was the year Battlefield Earth came out. This is what magazines would be like. They paid for me and a fact checker to go see Battlefield Earth on Sunday night it opened, and we both sat there and counted how many bodies we saw and then compared notes at the end. <laughs> My Battlefield Earth story is that I went with two other friends, and they both liked it. Wow. <laughs> I've yeah. literally never heard anyone liking that movie. I'm sure was... I they were defending it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm sure if I brought it up now, they'd be like, I don't. They probably like you know have selective memory. But 
That's I have a couple of my two friends who who saw it with me were at Entertainment Weekly. We both, all three of us, wound up buying the Talking Turtle doll. <laughs> and so every once in a while, once a year, we will, I will, we will, one of us will dig it out, and it just sounds now like John Travolta's having a stroke. Like you pull the <laughs> string, and it sounds so me. But we all of us still have our Talking uh, Turtle dolls. Do you remember any of the lines? Like, did it say something about Rat Brain or You Rat Brain? Yeah, it's, it's all. It's, <laughs> That, after a certain point, I think that was the only line that mine would do. Yeah. Um, and then it became, you know, and then, but it just, it just, it just starts sounding very mush mouth. But I love, I, I know it's in this house somewhere. I, I love that dumb talking turtle doll. It's one of my favorite stupid things that I have with my friends as, as a, as an almost 20 year going running joke. Yeah. A friend of mine from college, the running joke was every, every time it was somebody's birthday, the other roommates would conspire for, uh, to, to get the worst movie they could think of for that person. And one year I was given Battlefield Earth. Uh, and the, mm. the, the DVD box, like the only quote from a review was, and I don't remember who where the quote came from, but it was great scene transitions. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's 126 minutes. Yeah, it's like it's a, a movie. Unhelpful, like, yeah, it's a movie. It's, <laughs> it's a flickering images projected and then captured. You will believe it. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a very special kind of bad movie, and I was actually this is the last tangent, but I really was hoping that when Crawl came out, someone was going to do like a big long career spanning Barry Pepper anecdote because I was just like, oh, I would just love to have like I would love to hear him get the unvarnished stories now about <laughs> about making Battlefield Earth. That's right, so, I forgot he was in that. Oh yeah, he yeah. hasn't. <laughs> it was a big deal. He's like, oh man, now that I'm done with Saving Private Ryan, I'm going to this huge. The next Star Wars with John Travolta. Well, we're still talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Brian, thanks again so much. Uh, the book is best movie year ever. Um, can't recommend it enough. We had a great time reading oh, thank it. Thank you. It's yeah. terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for for coming on and, and talking movies and X Files with us. Thanks so much. This was really fun. I really appreciate it, guys. And I'll go. I'm gonna go check out some more X Files now. Thanks to you. So, th- so I really appreciate it. All right. Our pleasure. Excellent. So that was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Thank you so much again, Brian, for for coming on. Uh again, check him out on on Twitter. He had a great piece. Well, by the time you're hearing this, uh it won't have been le- uh, the week it came out, but he did a great piece on Tarantino um in the lead up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out, which is when we're recording. Um and yeah, uh super great guy. Really appreciate him taking the time to talk to us about 1999 and about X-Files. Yeah. So good what are stuff. we doing next time? We're talking about Prince. That's right. Specifically, we're talking about Purple Rain. Yep, the movie and the album. That's right. And we will be joined by Jody Vincent of What Cheer Writers Club. Where, yeah, uh, where we record. Yeah. So we're excited about that. Um, yeah. Had you seen... So we kind of... The three of us kind of took this from different perspectives. She had neither seen nor listened to Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. Um, you were more familiar with Prince's music but hadn't seen the movie. Correct. Uh, I saw the movie once under questionable circumstances <laughs> uh, and, and was not super familiar with the music. So, um, yeah, I, I'm excited. Uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's an odd movie for sure. But, uh, yeah, well, we'll get into it next time. Yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. We'll talk to you later. All right, see you then. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, Stitcher Premium, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And thanks, as always, to What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, where we record our episodes. If you want to learn more about them, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at What Cheer Club and visit their website at whatcheerclub.org.